Well, good morning to everyone. If you're new, I am Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and today it is my honor and privilege to invite you to the book of Amos. Point your Bibles to the book of Amos. If you don't know where Amos is, take a moment to go to the table of contents in your Bible. You can find Amos. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, So just look for the big books that are easy to find, like Psalms and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Just keep on going. You'll find the smaller little books. Past Ezekiel, you're going to hit Joel and Hosea, and then you'll find Amos right after Joel. So Amos chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab one from under the chair in front of you. Amos chapter 1 will be found on page 765. Amos chapter 1. Uh, We're going to be reading a big section of Scripture today, taking on almost two whole chapters. Uh, So I'll read most of it at the beginning here, and then I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll get to work in the passage, kind of working our way through it. It should be around 45 minutes or so. So a lot to cover. Let's go ahead and just jump right in. This is the Word of the Lord. Amos chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman, and shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they may enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, 
for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. So I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us grace to understand what we have just read and what is to come. Lord, preserve us and protect us from closing our ears and our hearts to what you speak to us today. As your son said often in his ministry, he who has ears, give, let him hear. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church on this morning for God's glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm generally not inclined to borrow an illustration from another preacher, but this one was too good not to use. So, full disclosure, this is not my illustration. In 2002, at a youth rally in Montgomery, Alabama, a preacher named Paul Washer was invited to speak. There were 5,000 young people gathered for this conference on evangelism. And if you've been to youth conferences of this type, you kind of know what they're like. Big loud bands and games and funny motivational messages and altar calls. And this conference was no different. When it came his time to preach, Mr. Washer addressed what he considered to be the lightness and the levity of a conference like that on evangelism. He pressed his concerns on the audience. He believed that they hadn't seriously considered the weight of their own sin, the holiness of their God, and God's call on their life for personal holiness. At one memorable point in that sermon, Mr. Washer urges 5,000 young adults to repent of their worldliness, to follow Christ, to pursue holiness, and to love God. And the crowd responded with clapping. And Mr. Washer waits until the clapping was over and then says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. I don't know anyone who attended this conference in 2002 in Alabama, and so I won't make any comment on how they received that rebuke. But what I will say is this, that I may as well have been in that number. I'm 43 years old. I grew up in church. I've missed church on the Lord's Day morning probably no more than a handful of times in my life which means that I have sat under more than 2,000 sermons. And I promise you, many times, my amens may easily have been followed up with a, I don't know why you're amening. I'm talking about you. 
There is a tendency in all of us, and it's usually worse the longer you've been a Christian, to do just what those 5,000 young adults did in 2002, to hear the Lord's loving rebuke of our sin and to convince ourselves He's talking about them. I'm sure glad He's saying that because He needs to hear that. Finally, she's getting what she deserves. In the opening sermon of the prophet Amos, he has this very effect. It seems this is how he has planned his opening sermon. The structure and the content of this prophecy draws a bullseye around God's covenant people, Israel. Just consider the order of the passage. Amos begins with a sermon addressing the sins of the Syrians. And this sermon, I will remind you from last week, is being preached to Israel. Syria was in the northeast of Israel. And then Amos moves to the sins of the Philistines, who were Israel's enemies in the southwest. From there, he turns to the Phoenicians in the northwest. And after that, he shoots across to the Edomites in the northeast, southeast, drawing two lines. X marks the spot with Israel in the middle. And he finishes with indictments against Ammon and against Moab, kind of making a full circle surrounding Israel with her in the middle. And after Israel would have heard the indictments against her enemies, she may well have nodded her head. It's about time. Start talking about them. And then in chapter 2, God sets His sight a little closer to home, to Judah in the south. And by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 6, I wonder if they realized they were in the center of the target. God had drawn His bow and released His arrow, and it hits the bullseye. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. So three points to draw from this text. Number one, God cares about the sins of the nations. And number two, God cares about the sins of His own people. And then number three, God is merciful to all who turn to Him in repentance and faith. God cares about the sins of the nations. God cares about the sins of His own people. And God shows mercy to all who turn to Him in repentance and faith. Let's have a look a little closer at the first section we read, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3 down to 8. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break 
the gate bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to curse, says the Lord. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and from him who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnants of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So a quick review from last week. The prophet Amos was a farmer, a blue-collar, ball-cap-wearing preacher in Wranglers from the south that, he, that God sent to preach against Israel, specifically against the, the elites, the wealthy elites in the north, in Israel. And he starts his first sermon by indicting six Gentile nations surrounding Israel. Now, you should know a Gentile is a non-Jew. So, these six nations to whom Amos addresses these judgments are not Jewish People. They were not Israelites. They had not received the special revelation of God through Abraham or Moses. These were pagan nations. They did not have God's law written on tablets in the altar inside of the Holy of Holies. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. And still God sees the evil they had done and still, we'll see in a moment, holds them accountable to it. The structure of these indictments, as you noticed, follow a pattern. In each, the Lord declares for three transgressions against X and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then He goes on to implicate them for a sin or two which they have committed. After that, He foretells of judgment that He will bring against these nations. And so before we get into the very particulars of this, I want, I want to point out three things about these indictments. The first that I want you to see is how each one of these prophecies begins for three transgressions and for four. Six, eight times in two chapters, we read for three transgressions and for four. And the point of this is to show God's patience, it's to show God's patience. With these nations, God is not like that father who goes from zero to 60 in two seconds over spilled milk. That's it, I've had it. That's not what's going on here. God is patient. Over and over in the Bible, we read that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So note well, we've said it before. That God does not have to be moved towards mercy. He is merciful. It's who He is. He has to be moved towards anger. If I could convince you of one thing this morning, it would be this. That your God is crazy about mercy. God is so attracted to you when you repent. Like the prodigal son's father running to meet him when he came home, your father runs to meet you 
when you repent. When you are at your lowest, your God is at His best. Yes, it is true that God the Holy Spirit is grieved and has been grieved over our sin. Yet when we return to Him in repentance, He's right there to meet us with open arms. And He rejoices. He calls the angels in together to rejoice with Him. Look, this sinner has repented. Look, I get to show her my son again. God is crazy about mercy. So for three transgressions and for four is a statement of God's patience. The Lord drew these Gentile nations to Himself, convicting their consciences, and they rejected His drawing. And so He convicted them again, and they rejected His drawing. And so He convicted them again, and they rejected His drawing. And so He convicted them again, and they rejected His drawing. And this fourth conviction comes with a wake-up call. This judgment is a wake-up call. And preaching on judgment isn't tremendously popular these days. Not likely to build a big church by preaching God's judgment. People, at least in this country, tend to prefer churches that talk about positive things, to build you up. Now, it's understandable. But a tornado alarm in your city isn't going to play a motivational speech over the loudspeakers at night. It's going to scream to wake you up. Because there's danger coming. You need to run and flee for cover. Last week we talked about Amos being like a fire alarm. There's smoke in the house. And he's warning us to wake up. Put out the fire. Seek refuge. You see, even the judgments that God is promising against these nations is a mercy. The Lord uses the least severe means to preserve His elect from every people in every nation. And these judgments, Cornerstone, are a kindness. So that's the first thing I want you to see. The structure is built around God's patience with these nations. The second thing I want you to see is that God sees Gentile nations. God sees Gentile nations. These people groups didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the law that God gave to Moses. And so... The question should arise like, how can God hold these people accountable for breaking laws that they didn't even know God had? It's a great question, which the Apostle Paul answers in Romans chapter 2. If you have time this afternoon, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 1, Romans 2. In verses 14 and 15 of Romans 2, we read that even though the Gentiles didn't have the law, they show that the work of the law has been written on their heart. It's what we call a conscience. Paul says, their conscience bears witness. 
Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul is saying that every person, every image bearer of God has a conscience. And that conscience bears witness to God's law, which He has written on their heart. So every person with cognitive ability knows, number one, that there is a God, and number two, that God has rules, that it's wrong to steal, that it's wrong to lie, that it's wrong to murder, that it's wrong to mistreat people. And so God has written His law on every person, every image bearer in these six Gentile nations, and He will hold them accountable to whether or not they have obeyed their conscience on these matters. Finally, I want you to see the nature of these judgments, the nature of these judgments. They all have to do with the treatment of other human beings. Every sin the Lord brings out has to do with their treatment of other image bearers of God. These are pagan nations, and notice there's not a single indictment against them on their false worship, on their idolatry. Now, of course, that sin, and Amos knows it's sin, But Amos also knows that false worship is what is behind their sinful behavior. What we worship determines how we live. Now, sin may appear in our actions, but it arises out of our hearts. Jesus Himself said that you will know them by their fruits, by the things they do. This is something Amos knows. But it's not so clear to these Gentile nations. And so Amos presses on particular things that would have been obvious to everyone. So to the Syrians, whose capital city was in Damascus, to the northeast of Israel, Amos exposes their sin of threshing Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Sledges of iron were these heavy wooden sleds with iron teeth protruding beneath. Grain harvesters would drag these sleds across the grain, and the iron teeth would chew up the grain to separate the grain from the stalk. God is accusing the Syrians of treating their conquered foes, the people of Gilead, like beds of wheat ruthlessly running roughshod over a people and destroying them without mercy. So God promises to wake the Syrians to the sin by sending a fire against the king's house and against the king's city. He promises to send the Syrians into exile in Kerr. Kerr was the place from which they found their independence many years before this. So it would be like telling the Americans, if you don't repent, I'm going to send you back to King George III. To the Philistines in the southwest, Gaza is their capital. Amos exposes the sin of carrying a whole people into exile and delivering them over to Edom. 
This is human trafficking. Taking soldiers and spoils of war was common in those days, but that is not what is being referred to here. Amos says the Philistines took a whole people, men, women, children, into slavery and sold them for profit to the Edomites. This is the slave trade. The Philistines desired wealth at the expense of human lives. And God promises to wake the Philistines with a fire, just like the Syrians. Their five major cities will fall, their military bases will collapse, their kings will die, people will perish. The sins of Syria and Philistia are similar in that both are related to inhumane treatment of image bearers of God. And God took notice, as He always does, every time material goods are treated as more valuable than human lives. One line of the X has been drawn. Let's take a look at the next two judgments again, verse 9 to 12. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, get my slide here, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and they shall devour her strongholds. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Tyre is the capital city of Phoenicia, a people to the northwest of Israel. And like the Philistines, they took part in the slave trade. But God adds one more sin to their other sin. He says that they have sinned by forsaking the covenant of brotherhood. Now compared to participation in the slave trade, breaking a treaty... It seems a relatively minor offense, right? But remember, this prophecy, even though it's given to the Phoenicians, given about the Phoenicians, this prophecy is being spoken to Israel. And Amos has a point in pointing out this particular sin in Phoenicia, as we will see in a few moments. So Phoenicians had broken a, a treaty. This treaty was probably with Israel, because many years before this, an Israelite king by the name of Ahab took a wife by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Tyre, thus entering into a political treaty with Israel, which the Phoenicians had broken. And so you can imagine that Amos's audience might have been clapping to hear about fire coming upon the Phoenicians for breaking the covenant that they had made. The Edomites in the southeast had also broken the covenant of brotherhood. 
The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Israel was descendants of Esau's brother, Jacob, which makes the Edomites cousins of the Israelites. And Amos points out how the Edomites had pursued their cousins with the sword, with no pity, with perpetual anger and wrath. They had nourished a hatred toward their cousins Israel. And so you can imagine the people in Israel nodding their heads as Amos is speaking. Yeah, it's about time. You did, you did something with those racist cousins of ours who keep troubling us. How eager they must have been for the Edomites to feel the heat of the fire of God's judgment. And here we are without notice. Amos has drawn a second line across God's covenant people, marking the bullseye where his sermon is headed. Two more judgments to come. Pick up reading in verse 13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Reba, and shall devour her stronghold with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their kings shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the stronghold of Kirioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. So against the Ammonites, God declares a judgment. The Ammonites were guilty of a wanton disregard for human life, committing the most horrendous atrocities one can imagine, ripping open the bellies of pregnant women so they can enlarge their own borders. This is an attempt to destroy future generations so that they get to keep the land that they took from them. The Ammonites killed unborn children, and fire is promised. Notice the intensity of God's judgment. It is loud, it is violent, it is complete. Their kings and their princes, who are undoubtedly responsible for calling for the killing of unborn children, are lost. The Ammonites cared more for their borders than they did for human life. And the Lord took notice as He always does, any time material possessions are more important than human lives. The sin in Moab is similar. They burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. This is the desecration of the body of a rival king. It would have prevented the Edomites from giving a proper burial to their king, 
It was a vengeful way of showing one's power, preventing the mourners from the loss of their leader, giving their leader a proper burial. Now, the king of Edom was an evil man. So why would God care about his dead body and how it was treated? Besides, compared to the Ammonites who murdered unborn children, it seems a rather tame sin, doesn't it? But again, I'll remind you, this message, even though it is about the Gentile nations, is being preached to Israel. And Amos has a point. The judgment coming against Moab for their disrespect of the dead, for preventing a suffering people from being able to honor their dead king, is met with swift and serious war against them. Their military bases are destroyed. Their kings and their king's sons are lost. And now Amos's target is completely drawn. The noose has been tied and has been slowly tightening around the neck of God's own people. And what we're about to see is Amos exposed the same sins of the Gentile nations in his own people. Like Syria and Philistia, Israel treated people as less valuable than material possessions. Like Phoenicia and Edom, Israel broke the covenant of brotherhood. And like Ammon and Moab, Israel oppressed the weak and powerless and had no regard for the suffering of others. And so Amos' first lesson is that people are not things. People are not things. And God takes notice every time people are treated like things. Let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now I suspect that when Amos turned his prophetic sermon to Judah, there were still some heads nodding in Israel. I mean, that's right. They've they've always thought they're better than us. They've always thought that Jerusalem is the real capital, that they're the ones who really worship the Lord. I've been saying it for years, they're hypocrites. About time they got what was coming to them. So I suppose that was the thought of some, still nodding. But I wonder if there were some in the audience whose nodding had slowed just slightly as they were starting to see the trajectory of this sheep farmer's sermon. Unlike the Gentile nations, Judah had God's law, and they had rejected God's law. They had not kept God's word, they had rejected God's word, and they will be held to a higher standard than the surrounding nations because they knew better, 
because of the purpose that God had given them to be a light to the nations. Because God had told them in Exodus 19, you are my special people. You're to be a kingdom of priests. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to reveal myself to you. You're going to live before me and the surrounding nations are going to see that I am great and come. And they hadn't. And so their sin is greater in that sense. After all, Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. God's God judgment against Judah is strict. But it is the same judgment against all the surrounding nations. Notice fire. So while God holds His people to a higher standard because He gave them His law, He shows no partiality to His people. Unrepented sin in Israel will be met with the same fire as unrepented sin in Syria. And this ought to be sobering for everyone here. Because here at Cornerstone, we are blessed with pastors who value the Word of God. That every Sunday morning, the Bible is opened. And these men ensure that the Bible is preached verse by verse, generally. And so we have to remember the words of the Apostle Peter, that when judgment comes, it starts in the household of God, and that we have to humble ourselves and ask the Lord for grace so that when we hear the preaching of His Word on Sunday morning, we're not like those youth, we're not like Israel. And we're not worried about those out there, but we're far more concerned about this one here. How does this text land on me and show my need for a Savior? And so the prophet lands his sermon. Let's pick up reading in verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel. I wonder if you could hear a pin drop. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine 
commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Notice what the Lord has against His covenant people. In verse 6, they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. Does that sound familiar? They treat people as less valuable than material goods. The Philistines sold the people into slavery for money. Israel did it for a new pair of shoes. In verse 7, they trample the poor to the dust. They turn the afflicted away. When Amos says, a man and his father go into the same girl and his name is profaned, he's referring to pagan worship. Often widows and orphans who couldn't take care of themselves became holy women, cult prostitutes who were paid for sex acts in the temple of Baal. Israel participated in the sex slave industry with their Israelite sisters. And God's people were supposed to care for one another, for the poor, for those who couldn't take care of themselves. There were special provisions in God's law for widows and orphans. But like in Tyre and in Edom, they broke the covenant of brotherhood. And in verse 8, it's terrible. The law of Moses in Exodus 22, the Lord forbade His people from taking garments in pledge. So a person who was in need, they could pledge to keep their word and they, as collateral, maybe they would give an overcoat or something. Just to say, I'm going to keep my word, here's my promise to you, my overcoat. I need that. And, and, the, and the wealthy person was allowed to hold the overcoat, but they weren't allowed to keep it overnight. At the end of the day, they had to give their overcoat back so that that person could sleep and not be cold. But here in Israel, they were not only taking their brother's garments, but they were also not giving them back. But then they were also using them seemingly as blankets when they took prostitutes in the temple of Baal. This is just a wanton disregard for the sanctity of human life for the preciousness of a brother and sister. And the law, fines were allowed, they were imposed on those who have been injured as restitution. But in Israel, the rich were taking wine from the poor and bringing them to the house of, the, house of God and offering them as an offering as if it were their own. It was wicked. And God saw all of it. God took notice. As He always does, every time material possessions are treated as more valuable than human lives. 
And so now Amos has come full circle. The sins of Israel parallel those of the Gentile nations. And the deepest sin among God's people is that they possessed God's Word and ignored it. And the Lord is indignant. In verses 9 to 11, they're a sort of, don't you remember what I did for you? Kind of thing. It was the Lord who delivered them from the Amorites. It was the Lord who delivered them out of Egypt. It was the Lord who led them patiently through the wilderness for 40 years. It was the Lord who sent His Word to them through the prophets, some of their own sons. It was the Lord who gave them the Nazarites to live holy before Him as an example to the nation. And how did Israel respond to this favor from God? They told the prophets to buzz off. They made the Nazarites break their vows. They ignored God's warning. They refused to repent. And so God promises a swift judgment against His people. And none of their riches and none of their strength will spare them. No one will escape the punishment to come. Even the strongest, He says, will flee away naked. So what's the point of all this? A pretty heavy passage. This is the point. This is where we'll end our time together. The Lord, as Pastor Brent has said already a couple of times today, is more willing to give mercy than we are to ask for it. You can bank your life on the rock-solid promise of the Lord Jesus, who said, all who come to me, I'll receive none will be turned away. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're an unbeliever, you need to know, no matter what you have done and no matter how many times you've done it, when you come to the Lord Jesus, you will be received by Him. No one will be turned away. You might be asking forgiveness for the first time or for the 400th time. There's mercy for you still. Amos is a tornado alarm, calling us to run for cover in the loving arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In His death on the cross, in His resurrection from the dead, you have every assurance that you are safe from the penalty of your sins. The Lord Jesus took the stripes on His back and carried His cross to Calvary and gave His sinless life as a ransom for sins He knew you would commit. He carried the cross to Calvary for sins He knew you would recommit. He carried the cross to Calvary for the sin when you told him, I won't do it again, and then did it, he knew it, and he went anyway. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Astonishing. There is no measure of the love in the heart of your Savior. He's more merciful 
you ever dare imagine. More willing to take you in than you ever dared imagine. And you need to understand, he's not looking for payback. His perfect life, his sinless death, is what made you worthy. You see, out there, you'll never measure up. But in here, you don't have to. He's already done it for you. You've been united to Christ. You have received the favor of God. That the same love the Father has for His Son is the same love He has for you. That's the point of this text. Turn to Him. Find forgiveness for anything and everything you've ever done. And on that note, dear Christian, you may clap because I am talking about you. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we confess that we often hear your gentle correction and think about others. We're more like the Pharisee in Luke 17 than we care to admit, thanking, even thanking you for that we're better than others. All the while you see our hearts. You reprove the pride in our hearts. Will you forgive us? Lord, please forgive us for every time we have felt like and acted like we're better than someone else. <laughs> Perhaps the, the world is more right than we want to admit. We are hypocrites. We do act as holier than thou. So, Father, will you look upon your Son, our Savior, and forgive us our sin. And create in each one here a humble heart and give grace that we would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but we would count others as more significant than ourselves. And instead of congratulating ourselves that we're not like those out there, Lord, move us to pray for those out there, those far from God, still blind to their own hypocrisies, and give us a voice of gospel grace to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' praise. Amen. If you have confessed your sins and are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have this assurance of pardon from Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. We have been forgiven.